Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history. Like monkeys, skipping and school dinners. School dinners? School dinners can't have a history of their own, Sam. However, (laughs) we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of the smile is all about the French Revolution. It's also all about cats. Or that the history of scribbling is all about Henry VIII. That's a brilliant one. I really want to do the history of scribbling. Well done. (laughs) The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. And of course, I've name-dropped him already, but the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Now, this is another episode. We've done 17, I think now, James, of our special homeschooling series for kids. Each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we prove that it does and that it's relevant to your exams. And today... Oh, we are going to do today. We are doing epic fails. Wow. Oh, my God. That reminds me. That reminds me so much of exams and epic failures <laughs> in exams. I had a friend who prided himself on coming bottom uh, in history. tests. <laughs> uh, somebody not to emulate kids. But as always, a brainstorm. How do we start thinking about epic fails or the history of failure? Where'd you go with that, well, Sam? One of, one of the first things I thought about was um, I've written a book on the War of American Independence. So this was between 1775 and 1781, though the war extended a little bit either side, when um, the British colonies in America fought and won their independence from the British Empire. And that's an epic fail on so many different levels. It was political failure. It was a failure of economics when the war actually happened. It was a failure of strategy in the army, of strategy in the Royal Navy, a failure of tactics, a failure of relationships with Native Americans, a failure of relationships with the British people who were living in the colonies of America. Everything went wrong, like a huge stream of dominoes knocking each other down. And it ended up with uh, America winning in its independence and setting up as the USA. Oh, that's very good. So what you've established there is a way of looking at any kind of historical topic and looking at how it failed. It might be the causes of the First World War, for example, or you might look at the way that something failed in terms of a historical figure's leadership, for example. Was it doomed to failure? Was it ill thought out? Was it a series of factors, like you've just outlined, that contributed to something? And you can apply it to general elections, wars, different crises. But also, it's fundamentally a way of looking at and judging the past, judging the past on its own terms. But also, a lesson from my eight-year-old daughter's ballet teacher. She is a woman in her 70s who thinks that children nowadays don't know how to fail. And so she regularly encourages the kids in her class to fail. She puts my daughter in the dungeon of failure, for example, when she hasn't done (laughs) a pirouette correctly. And she thinks that, that what she is teaching them is the ability 
to fail. Now, there is actually quite a serious point here that actually it's about learning that if you don't get something first time round, don't give up, but learn from it and build on that. Build a sort of degree of resilience. We should all be resilient, especially at the moment, don't you think, Sam? Yes, I think that's a really great way of thinking about it and actually being able to apply that to the past. I also realise there are so many things that I've studied in my life as a historian which apply to failure. <laughs> Maybe it's a bit depressing the way I look at history, but I was thinking about the Spanish Armada. I've written a book about that, an entire book about how Philip II failed to invade England in the summer of 1588 got Napoleon's invasion plans in the 19th century. He tried to invade England something like seven times. Also, I wrote a whole book on shipwrecks, and those are all about epic failures, the <laughs> Titanic itself, and so many of them. And I was actually thinking of what I thought the biggest epic fail for a shipwreck was, and I think it's the Torrey Canyon in 1967, Ooh. which is the first huge oil tanker uh, ship to actually be wrecked and it was full of crude oil and it ruined all of the beaches in the southwest it ruined the colliery it, oh. sorry it ruined the beaches it ruined um the environment the sea a truly truly terrible thing and the great fire of london james that's another one we need to discuss yes absolutely we should definitely do the great fire of london i don't necessarily see it as a well i suppose it's a failure of people at the time uh, rather than the the failure of the fire to burn london down entirely uh, <laughs> no that was a success i was thinking about yes. the, whoever 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 left the oven on in the baker's shop or yes. whatever yes, it yes, started yes. pudding lane so, <laughs> yeah, someone someone was responsible. Anyway, guys, um, but today we are going to take this idea of epic failures, of getting things wrong, and we're going to apply it to something called the League of Nations. Now, the context for this is it, that it happened after the First World War. So we were in the aftermath of the First World War. Europe's a complete wreck. There are cities... Villages destroyed, maybe as many as nine million people just from England and France who have died. The economies of the major powers are absolutely ruined. In fact, the only major power left um, standing is America. And the president of America is a chap called Woodrow Wilson, and he had a very keen idea on what he wanted to happen afterwards. Just to say here, you should listen to our podcast on blame where we talked about Woodrow Wilson and the other leaders of the time enforcing guilt onto the Germans after the First World War. What Woodrow Wilson wanted to do was to build a new world in which something as horrific as the First World War could not happen again. And he wrote something called his 14-point plan. And the most important point of those 14 points was number 14 itself. He wanted to set up an international body called the League of Nations. And this was intended to work on a principle of international cooperation and so that people would never allow such a war as the First World War ever to happen again. What he wanted to do was he wanted all the, the major nations to join. He wanted all of the major nations to disarm. If those nations had a dispute they wanted them to take it to the League where it could be discussed and therefore no problems could erupt into absolute chaos and war. All of those major nations, they promised to protect each other, to have each other's backs, to look out for each other, for, for any troublemakers. And 
one of the ways he wanted to do this was to encourage a certain amount of, of, of responsibility among the leaders. And there are different views on how this League of Nations should actually work, should actually be set up. Wilson wanted it to be permanent and almost like a parliament where you have representation, representatives of every nation. The British leaders wanted something that was a bit more uh, ad hoc, a bit more occasional, that came together only in times of emergencies. And the French, who were very, very anxious of the German threat, even after the war, they wanted there to be a League of Nations, but they wanted the League to have its own army. These are all very different views on what it should be. In the end, Wilson's view of it triumphed. He was the man with the idea of what it should be, and they set up this League of Nations. So the original idea for the League of Nations was first presented in the Treaty of Versailles in 1918, at the end of the war, but it was not open uh, it didn't really get going until January 1920. And there are some very clear ideas of what, what it was there to do. Firstly, to discourage any aggression from any nation. Secondly, to encourage countries to cooperate, especially in terms of business and trade. Thirdly, to encourage nations to disarm. Fourthly, to improve the living and working conditions of all people in all parts of the world. So those are the four main ideas behind the League of Nations. What happened next, James? Well, there were a series of episodes that really tested the League of Nations. And this was the Manchurian crisis and the Abyssinian crisis. Now, to start with the Manchurian crisis, this dates from 1931 to 1933, and it followed the Mukden incident in which Japanese rail tracks were destroyed in an explosion. Now, they claimed that it was saboteurs, that it was an act of aggression, and the Japanese responded with force. And what they did was they took control of the Chinese province of Manchuria, the thing that happened next was that the League of Nations investigated the issue and they found that the Japanese were at fault. However, what happens is something that really destabilises the League itself because the Japanese ignored the decision of the League of Nations and in a fit of pique, they left the organisation and kept the province, which wasn't actually returned to Chinese rule, until the end of the Second World War. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background to how this all came about. And it's all related to the position of Japan in the first half of the 20th century. Now, since 1900, Japan's economy and its population had been massively growing at a very rapid scale. And by about the 1920s, Japan was emerging as a major power. It had a very powerful army and navy, and the leaders of the army often dictated the policy of the government. And secondly, it had a strong industry, and in particular, it exported its manufactured goods to China and the United States of America in particular. It also, thirdly, 
had a growing empire which included the Korean peninsula. So it was aggressively trying to expand itself. Now, we then have the Great Depression, which hits in the 20s, and it affects Japan quite badly. What this leads to is trade barriers or tariffs put up against Japanese goods by both of their major importing partners, the United States and China. And without this trade, Japan felt that it couldn't feed its people properly. And army leaders in Japan were in no doubt about what to do. They needed to build up the Japanese empire. And in this case, they needed to do it by force. And it's here that we can insert the Manchurian incident in 1931, which gave them the opportunity that they were looking for to expand the Japanese empire. And they used this explosion as an excuse to basically invade. China appeals to the League to intervene and Japan claimed that it wasn't invading as an aggressor but simply defending and settling a local difficulty. The Japanese argued that China was in such a state of anarchy that they had to invade in self-defence in order to maintain peace in that particular part of the world. For the League, this was a very, very serious test because Japan was a leading member of the League and it needed very, very careful handling. There was a long and very frustrating delay. And I think this is exactly what was wrong with the League of Nations, its inability to make decisions in a timely manner. League officials sailed around the world to assess the situation in Manchuria for themselves. And it was only in September 1932, a full year after the invasion, before they presented their report. Detailed and balanced though it was, the judgment was that Japan had acted unlawfully. Manchuria should then be returned. But as I've already said, the Japanese didn't do that. And so the League in many ways shows itself as powerless. It discussed economic sanctions, but without the USA, who were Japan's main trading partner, they would be meaningless. Britain seemed more interested in keeping up good relations with Japan than agreeing to sanctions. And you can see this in a brilliant cartoon by the cartoonist David Lowe, published in 1933. He was one of the most famous cartoonists of the 1930s, and he often penned little sketches of dictators around the world. And what he's showing in this cartoon is the ineffectiveness of the League of Nations. This cartoon, titled The Doormat, attacks the weakness of the League of Nations in the face of Japan. And what it shows is a Japanese soldier walking all over the figure of the League of Nations, while the League officials themselves in the doorway bow formally to the Japanese official. And the British Foreign Secretary, John Simon, is seen on the ground with a kit called face-saving kit, and he's dabbing powder on the League's nose to show that it's about face-saving. So that they know that this is wrong and that they are basically just putting on a good front. 
Now, it was not only the crisis with Manchuria that tested the League of Nations. It was also a result of a conflict between Italy and Ethiopia over a part of the world that then was known as Abyssinia. And again, at this point, the League of Nations could do absolutely nothing to prevent it. And this was another very tough test for the League of Nations, which, to be honest, it hadn't been in existence for particularly long at this time. Now, this conflict between Italy and Ethiopia came about because Mussolini had been feeling very vengeful for the defeat for the defeat that he had suffered earlier at the hands of Abyssinia in Adowa. And this Abyssinian crisis was a diplomatic crisis which took place between 1934 and 1937 and it was a very aggressive policy against Ethiopia. It originated as a result of the Velvel incident in November the 22nd 1934 which marked an increase, an escalation in the conflict between the Kingdom of Italy and the Empire of Ethiopia, then known as Abyssinia. And in December 1934, there was a dispute between the borderland between Abyssinia and the Italian Somaliland, which flared up into fighting. In January of the next year, 1935, the Emperor of Abyssinia, Haile Selassie, went to the League of Nations and asked them to intervene. In July of that year, 1935, the League banned arms sales to both sides and in September of that year, it appointed a committee to arbitrate. The League's committee suggested that Italy, however, should have some land in Abyssinia. They, they, and then in December 1935, news leaked about this pact called the Hall-Laval Pact, which was a secret plan made by the Foreign Secretary of Britain and the Prime Minister of France to give Abyssinia to Italy. So in the end, the League did almost nothing and Italy's 100,000 strong army invaded Abyssinia and conquered it. Now, the important point to make is the impact that these two crises had on the League. And it became very, very clear that if a strong nation was prepared to ignore the League, the League would do very little about it. The delays and slowness of action made the League look scared, unable and unprepared to intervene. And as we've seen in several of these cases, the sanctions that they sought to impose were just simply useless. They didn't put enough pressure on people to change how they reacted. Everybody realised that Britain and France, as two of the great powers, were simply not prepared to use military force to intervene. And four major powers, in many ways, betrayed the League. France, Italy, Japan and Britain. So what hope was there for smaller nations that the League would actually protect them? And instead, what we see is the League and other politicians following a policy of appeasement. And this was what led to Hitler to move ahead with his plans. So there we go. We have the League of Nations and 
the fact that it was built up to try and prevent exactly what happened. And it really is one of the biggest epic fails in history. I think we should just have a little quiz, James, to see if people have been listening carefully. Oh, yes, indeed. First up, which power invaded Manchuria? Secondly, when and why did they invade Manchuria? Thirdly, why did Mussolini want to invade Abyssinia? Who was the man behind the idea of the League of Nations? And finally, what was the purpose of the League of Nations? Well, I hope you can answer those questions. If not, you'll have to go back and listen again. And we've got a little task for you as well, haven't we, James? We certainly have. So we have two tasks, in fact. The first is... Imagine that you are the secretary of the League of Nations. Your task is to write a letter to Mussolini to explain to him what he has done wrong and what he now needs to do to repair that. The second activity is to draw a timeline. Historians are all about timelines, plot a series of events, but draw a timeline from December 1934 to May 1936, down the middle of a piece of paper, and use the text to mark out the key events on it. Now, on one side, put the actions of Mussolini or Hitler, and on the other, the actions of Britain, France and the League of Nations. And that will get you thinking about how these different sides were operating during this period. And we will follow up this podcast with another one, with, which is to do with the rise of the Nazis and the outbreak of the Second World War. And you'll just come to realise how much of an epic fail this really was. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it. And do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com to find out all about our books, our other podcasts and the live shows when we eventually get back into the theatres. Also, please find us on social media. We're all over Twitter. Facebook and Instagram and come and make friends with us. We'd love to hear from all of you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.